We appreciate you. Thank you, team, and uh, thanks, Pastor Tyler. Appreciate you being here today. As uh, as Pastor Rob mentioned, I don't know if he's still in the in the in the building, but uh, Rob and Sienna are expecting their first child. In fact, uh, her due date was yesterday. So, uh, Rob, wherever you are, you have your permission to leave your cell phone on throughout the service. Everyone else, unless you're pregnant, turn your phone off. But uh, Rob can leave his phone on. And if you see him bolt out of his seat and, and like, kick, kick open the back doors, uh, it's not that he's offended by the sermon. I don't, I don't think it's because he's offended by the sermon. It's because something is happening. I've just asked that he, he, uh, he, he wouldn't pull the fire alarm on his way out. But other than that, he's, he's going to be in a hurry, and we're, uh, we're cheering for them. Well, good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Acts 28, verse 17. That's on page 937 in the church Bibles. This morning, uh, we come to the end of our journey through the Acts of the Apostles, which we began just a little more than a year ago. Uh, we've been using this series as an opportunity to measure ourselves, to evaluate ourselves against the pattern that we see in the early church. Are we still committed to the same things that they were committed to? Are we still worshiping the same God? Are we preaching the same gospel? Those are the questions we've been asking. For the last several weeks, we've been tracking the Apostle Paul's journey through the Jewish and Roman court systems. In the providence of God, Paul was given an opportunity to make a defense of Christianity before senators, governors, kings, And now here in this final scene in the story, we see him awaiting his audience with the emperor of Rome. So hopefully you have your Bible open now to Acts 28. I'll begin reading at verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I think the first thing we would say as we come to the end of this story is that this is a somewhat surprising conclusion. Reading R.C. Sproul's commentary this past week made me laugh. He said, if I were to purchase a novel and find after reading to the end of it that I am not told what happens to the hero, I am going to complain to the publisher. (laughs) Well, of course, as R.C. Sproul, I'm sure, knows very well, the Acts of the Apostles is not a novel. It's a work of theology and history. And in this particular case, as I'm sure R.C. also knows, it would be extremely unwise to complain to the publisher. (laughs) Nevertheless, he makes a fair point. Uh, This is an odd ending. It's, It's odd that we aren't told what happens to the Apostle Paul. Does he he get to have a hearing before Nero? If so, how does that go? Is Paul exonerated? Is he executed? Is he torn to pieces by beasts in the Colosseum? We need to know. Now, our best reading of the pastoral epistles and of church history would seem to indicate that Paul did, in fact, have a hearing before Nero, about which we know nothing. He was then released and he spent an additional two years traveling around the Roman Empire, preaching the gospel and planting churches before he was rearrested, summarily condemned, and executed by beheading on a milestone on the Ostian Way just outside of Rome in the year A.D. 64. All right, fair enough. But why doesn't Luke tell us about any of that? He could have told us, Church history says that Luke lived to A.D. 84, which means 20 years after the Apostle Paul died. So why didn't he tell us about any of that? And the answer would seem to be that Luke, in all likelihood, wrote this story, wrote this ending during the two years that Paul was awaiting trial in Rome. And he had no idea, of course, how much longer Paul's part of the story would last And the churches were eager to receive this story. Remember, Christians are not supposed to be innovators. We're supposed to be stewards. Paul said to Timothy, one of those second-generation leaders, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Christianity is a giant relay race. We're supposed to be handing off this message, this truth, this gospel, intact, without alteration, from one generation to the next. That's the the goal. Now, if you're more into home renovations than sports, uh, maybe think of it like this. Christianity is like hanging wallpaper. Each new strip is supposed to align perfectly with the one that came before, thus the need for the original strip, and that's what the Acts of the Apostles is. It's like a plumb line. And so Luke, having, again, no idea how much longer Paul's trial would take, finished his manuscript and released it to the churches as it was. Now perhaps, I wonder, perhaps Luke intended at some point later to release a new version of Acts with the revised 
ending of Paul's story. Maybe he did. Maybe he intended to do that. But one thing we know for sure is that he didn't, which suggests that the story as we have it is the story that the Holy Spirit wanted told. It lands where it is supposed to land. I. Howard Marshall puts it this way. He says, thus, the final picture which is presented to the reader is of Paul's last appeal to the Jews and his acceptance of a call to the Gentiles. The impression conveyed is that Paul felt throughout his ministry the duty to go first to the Jews and that it was when they refused the message that he went to the Gentiles. All this fits in with the emotional expression of Paul's feelings regarding his call in Romans 9 to 11. It also gives a climax to the book in that the missionary program of Acts 1-8 is now brought to a decisive point. The gospel has come to the capital city, and it is proclaimed without hindrance to the Gentiles. The church is on the brink of further expansion with Paul's hope of reaching Spain in the background and indicating the direction for further advance. The church is thus given its marching orders. Rome is a stage on the way and not the final goal. In principle, it is free to ignore the Jews, at least for the time being, and to go to the Gentiles. Close quote. At least for the time being. What does he mean by that? He, he cites there Luke 21, 24, where Luke cites Jesus as saying, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. He's speaking about the Jewish people there. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So in Luke's mind, these two issues are connected. The Jewish people will be hard toward the gospel for most of our mission to the nations. But then suddenly, near the end of that mission, the disposition of the Jewish people will change. And thus, in the providence of God, the ending of Acts as we have it serves as the perfect hinge between the first generation and all those that follow. The story leaves us with the distinct impression that our job from this point on is to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. But it is also telling us that we must not give up hope for the Jews. And so it makes sense for us to conclude our journey through the book of Acts by paying attention to these twin themes. Our present mission to the Gentiles and our future hope for the Jews. Let's begin with our mission to the Gentiles. Look again at Acts 28, 28. Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And of course, that sounds a lot. That reminds us of the great commission given by Jesus to the disciples just prior to his ascension. He says in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the mission of the church in a nutshell. It's extremely straightforward. You could write it on a napkin. Uh, you've probably heard before that there's only one imperative verb, one command proper, in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples. And then it's supported by three participles. Participles carry imperatival force, but they support the main imperative, meaning they flesh out for us how this main imperative will be accomplished. And so we're to make disciples by going, baptizing, and 
teaching. That's the mission of the church. But what about prayer? People will ask. What, uh, what about worship? What about fellowship? All those things are extremely important, as we've seen again and again and again in the book of Acts. So what about those things? How should we think about those things? Those things are better understood as the life of the church. That's who the church is. That's what the church does. The church worships. The church prays. The church loves and cares for one another. But the mission of the church is about extending that outwards. As John Piper said famously, mission exists because worship doesn't. See, the mission of the church is to reach out and bring others in. And we do that by going, baptizing, and teaching. So let's take a few minutes and talk briefly about each of those things in turn. First of all, then, what does it mean to be going? Now, the going, of course, is related to the of all nations. The church in Matthew 28 is being told to spread outwards. It is being told to cross borders. It is being told to reach out beyond the traditional boundaries of kin, class, and tribe. And of course, that's exactly what we see the first generation of disciples doing. In the history of the church written by Eusebius in the fourth century, it says, meanwhile, the holy apostles and disciples of our Savior were scattered over the whole world. Thomas, tradition tells us, was chosen for Parthia. Andrew for Scythia, John for Asia, where he remained until his death at Ephesus. Peter seems to to have preached in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. Finally, he came to Rome where he was crucified, head downwards at his own request. What need be said of Paul, who from Jerusalem as far as Elycrium preached in all its fullness the gospel of Christ and later was martyred in Rome under Nero. That's a lot of going. Christianity is, by design, a multinational, multi-ethnic movement. And there is absolutely nothing else like it in the world. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Can you say amen to that? You're going to have to fight for this in your generation because our culture is becoming increasingly racially and tribally divided. Have you noticed that? The devil is trying to turn us against each other, and he is making skillful use of social media in order to do that. He wants us to think of ourselves as Canadians first and Christians second. He wants us to be fearful of the immigrant. He wants to show us videos that confirm our worst suspicions about people from other groups. He wants to simplify, exaggerate, and divide. Why? Because that's a great way to shut down the Great Commission. Do not be taken in by that. Never forget, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. You are first and foremost a citizen of the coming kingdom of God. You're a Canadian second, a distant second. Now, it's okay to be patriotic. It's it's okay to sing O Canada and to remember and to honor our veterans. The Bible says that we should outdo one another in showing honors. That's fine. 
But we must never forget that our primary loyalty is to the family of God. And our primary mission is to gather other people into the family of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So we make disciples by going. And then secondly, we make disciples by baptizing. What does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, calling on people to die to their former allegiances and identities so as to live for Christ. That's what baptism is. Baptists have an interesting relationship with the word sacrament. I don't know if you know this, but historically, in the first couple of generations, Baptists used the word sacrament without apology, without awkwardness. So you can read all the Baptist fathers, uh, you know, the, the Pastor Matt's been writing about in, uh, in his work. You can, you can read them all, and they refer to baptism in the Lord's Supper as sacrament without a moment's embarrassment. But, but then in the intervening centuries, all of a sudden there was a bit of awkwardness about that because uh, Baptists became very clear and are very concerned to demonstrate that they were not Roman Catholics. And, and therefore, anything Roman Catholics did, we, we took a big step away from. And we said, no, no, no we're, you know, that, we don't do that. And, and so for a lot of Baptists, the word sacrament came to mean basically silly Roman Catholic ritualism. Except that's not what the word means. The, the word sacrament was actually originally borrowed from the Roman legions. The Latin word sacramentum was the oath of allegiance that a soldier made first to the emperor and then secondly to his legion. And the early Christians took that over because they understood that Jesus is Lord, not the emperor. And that our primary allegiance needed to be to Jesus. So when you got baptized, what you were saying when you went under the water is, I'm dead. I'm dead to me, and I'm dead to all other claims on me. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying, I live now to Christ. Literally, what you were saying is, I'm in the Lord's army. Do you remember we used to sing that song in Sunday school? You have to be 50 or better to know this one. Remember? I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. Remember? It's fantastic. We had the best songs. Do you remember that? So, you're, you know, I may never do all those things, but I'm in the Lord's army. Remember we used to understand that? What that means is you're a soldier under command. Don't make me sing Striper because I will. You would appreciate that. You and you alone would appreciate Striper had a fantastic album called Soldiers Under Command back in the mid-'90s. It was fantastic. You should all Google it. Maybe not. Grandma, don't, don't Google But we understood that we were soldiers under command, that Christ was our commanding officer. And so when you go under the water, you're saying, it doesn't matter anymore. Nobody, you should not come up out of the water saying, now here's my goal for life. You're dead. You don't have goals for life. You have a commanding officer who gives you orders. And it's interesting because, you know, as you probably know, in the last hundred years or so, Baptists have preferred to refer to baptism and, and the Lord's Supper as ordinances, which simply means things ordered by Jesus. But here's the thing. If you understand what sacramentum means, it means exactly the same thing as ordinances. It means you are now a soldier under command, and you do what the Lord orders you to do period. Here's a funny thing. Maybe we'd have fewer nominal believers 
in the evangelical Baptist movement if we actually brought back that term and explained to people what it meant. Because I think a lot of evangelicals, and a lot of Baptists in particular, think that baptism is just kind of a graduation thing. Like once you graduate from Sunday school, you get baptized. We give you a gold pin, you get an extra hot dog at the carnival. No, that's not what it is. It is literally your sacred oath of allegiance to Christ as Lord. Baptism is the initial pledge of allegiance, and then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing or perpetual oath of allegiance. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, I am still in the Lord's army. Lord, I present myself. It's muster time, right? I'm here, Lord. I'm in formation. Command me as thou will. And when we hand you the plates, have you ever noticed that the elders pass you the plate? There is a reason behind that tradition. The elders passing you the plate is the way of the church saying, we credit your profession of faith. We don't make your profession of faith real or false. That's between you and Jesus. But we credit that, meaning it looks like you're still in uniform. It looks like you're still with us. It looks like you're still here. And so if you do goofy things, if you go off and have an affair with your secretary, if you start living in a way that indicates that you did not die to yourself, you are still living for yourself, you are clearly not under command, then we withhold the plate. That's what excommunication is. It means ex, away from, communion. We can know, you can think whoever, you can think whatever you like about yourself, we no longer think you're a believer. That's what it is. And so baptism is your original Pledge of Allegiance. The Lord's Supper is your ongoing Pledge of Allegiance. It's us saying, you're still here, you're still with us, we see that, we credit that. And it's all of us together saying to God, Lord, in your mercy, grant unto us food for the journey and grace for the day. Amen. So making disciples is about bringing people into that rhythm and cycle. So we make disciples by going, we make disciples by baptizing, and then, of course, we make disciples by teaching. What does that mean? Specifically, Jesus says that we're to teach people all that he commands. Well, of course, as the word of God in the flesh, that means everything. That means teaching people the whole counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul was happy to say that he had done in Ephesus teaching the whole counsel of God from cover to cover with a particular emphasis and focus on the person and work of Christ. Listen, if you are reading the Bible such that you are maximally excited about anything other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are reading it wrong. That's the climax. That's the focus. That's the punchline. That's the biggest thing. And so, you know, every once in a while I meet evangelicals who are super excited about something other than Jesus as they're reading the Bible. Maybe that's the particulars of prophecy. Maybe that's the secret meaning of Jewish feasts. Maybe that's the Old Testament law. Hey, listen, all those things are great. But if you are maximally excited about those things in your Bible reading, then you are reading the Bible in a sub-Christian way. What we're supposed to do is read the Bible so that we can understand who God is, who we are, and how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to see when we read the Bible. That's what we're supposed to say when we're teaching people all the things that Jesus commanded. That's what we see Jesus sending us out to do. That's what we see the apostles 
reminding us to do. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. So we're to make disciples of the nations by going, baptizing, and teaching, but we are not to lose hope for the Jews. So let's take a few minutes and talk about that. What exactly is our hope for the Jews? Well, of course, we've been talking about that for the last several weeks. In his defense of Christianity, the Apostle Paul has consistently said, I'm on trial because I believe in the hope of the Jews. He says that again in the passage we're just looking at. He said it, of course, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at him saying that to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 6 to 8. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul believed that the hope of the Jews was now being realized through the person and work of Christ. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection that had been promised. He was the cornerstone upon which the house of God would be renovated and rebuilt. He was the branch from which the new tree would sprout, grow, and be established throughout all the earth. Jesus was and is the hope of the Jews. But for some reason, in the dark providence of God, after the first generation, the Jews generally began to harden toward the gospel. The ground floor of the Christian church, of course, was almost exclusively Jewish. But here at the transition between the first and second generation, we are told that moving forward, the Jews will not make up the majority of converts. And that will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We have both of these phrases. Luke records Jesus saying that in Luke 21, 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That teaching obviously made quite an impression on the Apostle Paul. He mentions it in his letter to the Romans, saying, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the hope seems to have been that once the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, once there has been a, a large or a significant portion of converts from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, once those people have come in, then the hardness will be removed and the Jewish people as a whole will turn and embrace their Messiah. In this way, all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. That seems to have been Paul's hope for the Jews. And it explains, in part, his commitment to the Gentile mission. In the same chapter of Romans, Romans eleven thirteen to 16, Paul says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Paul says there that he is working as hard as humanly possible in the Gentile mission so as, by God's grace, hopefully to stir up jealousy 
among the Jews, which he believes at some point will encourage them to turn in faith toward the Messiah. And when that happens, Paul expects nothing less than life from the dead. Why? Because he believes in the biblical principle of first fruits. One faithful Jew has already risen from the dead, and therefore, in the providence and timing of God, the rest will surely follow. That was Paul's view. And it appears to have been the majority view among our spiritual ancestors as well. William Carey and Andrew Fuller, for example, two of the founders of the Baptist Missionary Movement, both looked forward to a general conversion of the Jewish people prior to the return of Christ. Fuller wrote on this topic at some length in his expository remarks relative to the conversion of the Jews. Ian Murray, the church historian, has written convincingly that this was the dominant view of the Puritans in general, not just the Baptists, citing, for example, the venerable Richard Sibbs, who said, let no man therefore despair, nor, as I said before, let us despair of the conversion of that are savages in other parts. How bad soever they be, they are of the world. And if the gospel be preached to them, Christ will be believed on in the world. Christ's almighty power goeth with his own ordinances to make it effectual. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is come in, then comes the conversion of the Jews. That was the hope of our great-grandparents. They expected the great commission to be successful among the nations. And near the end of that, they expected to see the mass conversion of the Jewish people. Thanks be to God. So, what are we supposed to do with all that information? As I said, it's an odd ending to the book. Feels like an odd ending to the series. And, and this feels like an odd ending to the message. We've probably all heard lots of messages in the Great Commission, right? We lean in for that. The future of the Jews? You know, six weeks ago, I'm guessing that most of you would have been bored through that section of the sermon. But then all of a sudden, the world changed again. On October 7th, as we witnessed the horrific attacks by Hamas upon Israel and and the threat now of a wider war breaking out in the Middle East, all of a sudden, the hope of the Jews, for many of us, is very much front of mind. So again, what is a believer to do? It cannot be denied that Israel is in a very precarious position. They are surrounded by nations and peoples who hate them. And they are currently estranged from their covenant Lord. And Bible readers know exactly what that means. Even in the Old Testament, when Israel was not in right relationship with the Lord, they were at the mercy of their enemies. You know that. That's why they were defeated by the Assyrians. That's why they were defeated by the Babylonians. That's why they were defeated by the Romans. Because God is not some kind of cave troll on a chain that Israel can drag out as a super secret weapon against their enemies. That's not who God is. Again, you know that if you're a Bible reader. This morning, if you're uh, doing the RMM Bible reading journey, did you notice this? This morning we read 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25 is, I would make, if I were to make a list of the top five most depressing chapters in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 25 is on that list. In 2 Kings 25, you remember King Zedekiah, who was the last king of the Jews 
in, in Israel. King Zedekiah is captured. They were trying to make a break. Uh, Jerusalem had been under siege by the Babylonians. They tried to make a break through the wall, make a break for it. Problem is, it's hard to run really fast when you haven't eaten in months. So the Babylonians quickly capture them. Do you remember that? They bring Zedekiah in chains before King Nebuchadnezzar. And then they capture all his sons. And they bring them before King Zedekiah. And they gouge out their eyes, slaughter them before Zedekiah, and then they gouge out his eyes so that the last thing he would remember having ever seen was the death of his sons. And then we're told that the city is raised, that the temple is burned to the ground, and the Jews are led into exile. How any person could read that story and think that God is always and only on team Israel, no questions asked, is beyond me. Clearly, questions are asked. And the first of those questions God asks is, are you in right relationship with me? You know, it's interesting. Also in our RMM Bible readings this morning, we read Psalm 144. Just a reminder of how incredibly selective human beings are when they actually do read the Bible. Psalm 144 is, is the psalm we like to go to when we're thinking about Israel. It's when King David says, you know, the Lord has trained my hands for war. He, he teaches me to bend the bow. His hands are like a helmet around me when I go into battle. We're like, yeah, you see, God is on team Israel. Well, hold on a second. God is on team David who was a man after God's own heart and who was also the forerunner of Messiah. So maybe from Psalm 144, we would say God is on team Messiah. See, this is what happens when you only read the parts of the Bible that appeal to your presuppositions. When you read the whole Bible, when you, isn't it interesting to read 2 Kings 25 and Psalm 144 on the same day? What's it saying? It's saying, yeah, God is a fortress. Saying, yeah, God is a warrior. Absolutely. For those in right relationship with him through the anointed one. How do you read the Bible and think that there is any way to access the promises and blessing of God apart from being right in right relationship with God through Messiah? Unless I'm missing it, that's the whole point of 2 Corinthians, right? When Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the blessings of God are now yes and amen, where? In Christ. In, in Christ. So here's my point. What's my, what I'm saying is if you ever want to see peace in the Middle East, what you need to do is pray for Jews and Muslims to be reconciled to God through Jesus there will be no peace, no stability, and no lasting prosperity in that region until that happens. But it will happen. At some point in the future, it will happen. So what should we do in the meantime? That's the big question, isn't it? My suggestion is that we do exactly what the Apostle Paul does in this story. 
we should pour ourselves into our mission to the nations because that is the part of the process that has been assigned to us. The mysteries of providence, the softening of rock-hard hearts, the opening of long-closed eyes, all of that lies significantly above our pay grade as a great many things in this universe do. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. My friends, there are things going on right now, I believe, in this moment. I'm not saying that in a general sense. I'm saying that in a specific, immediate sense. There are things going on right now in the spiritual realm that we cannot see and cannot understand. There are things, movements of providence happening beyond the curtain, behind the curtain, and beyond our sight. We can't control these things. And so we just need to pray, trust, and carry on. To borrow a line from Ed Stetzer, the moment we are in does not pause the mission we are on. And we are on a mission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarifying vision of Scripture today. We thank you for the hope that is held out and for the mission that has been given. Lord, I pray that you would awaken each of us to our duties in Christ under our head, under our master, under our commanding officer, that we would go that we would cross lines, that we would cross boundaries, that we would reach out beyond the extent of our our class, our kin, our tribe, and that we would take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth, starting right here in the city of Aurelia. Lord, we would dare to thank you that the nations are coming to Aurelia. It makes the first step in this process a little bit easier for us. And so, Lord, we ask for your help that you would Give us words to speak when we have opportunity. And Holy Spirit, that you would go before and open eyes and soften hearts and dig ears for people. That our friends and neighbors could see, believe, trust, and delight in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The hope of the nations, the Prince of Peace, and the light of the world. I pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.